Hello, and welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, bringing you the latest social, cultural and historical research on science and belief. When we think about the relationship between social or cultural groups and individuals, it seems obvious that the groups we're part of, our family, our friendship groups, our national society even, have some impact on us as individuals. They influence our tastes, our lifestyle choices, and the language or dialect we speak. However, though it may seem less obvious, our membership of specific social groups and how we and others in society think about them can have more profound impacts on us as individuals, shaping our fundamental perceptions of reality. To discuss this with us today, we have Dr. Kimberly Rios, a social psychologist at the University of Ohio who researches the relationship between science, religion and identity. Kim will show us how our perceptions of things as seemingly fixed as the length of a straight line are shaped by group pressures, discuss the differential impacts membership of majority and minority groups have on our identity and the potential for us to choke under pressure, and even introduce us to her dog Jimmy. Before we meet Kim, to introduce myself, I'm Dr Will Mason Wilkes, a research fellow in popular culture and media at the University of Birmingham, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. James Riley. Hello, James. Hello. I am also a research fellow at the University of Birmingham with Will. Um, and this week, Will, we're actually missing someone, aren't we? We are. Our usual co-host, Rachel, is uh, having a well-earned break this week. So she's on leave somewhere tropical like uh, York. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it's just me and James today. So hopefully we'll be able to muddle through without Rachel. And joining us on the podcast today is Dr. Kimberly Rios and her small four-legged friend. Who have you got there, Kim? Oh, this is Jimmy. <laughs> he comes to a lot of the conferences with me. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and I'm holding him in case he sees something um, out the window that he wants to bark at. <laughs> he doesn't disturb the podcast. That's fantastic. Uh, is he your research associate? Uh, yeah. Research assistant. <laughs> yeah, I like to say he has an honorary doctorate. <laughs> awesome. So, Kim, can I ask? How are you? Where are you? And what do you do? I'm under the current circumstances doing all right. Uh, I'm currently in southeastern Ohio. I'm an associate professor of social psychology at Ohio University, where I've been since 2013. And uh, normally I would be a bit anxious about starting teaching and classes in the fall, but I am fortunately on sabbatical this year. And this was planned prior to the pandemic. So it just ended up being perfect timing. So now I can really focus on research instead of uh, worrying about how to convert all my classes to different formats and such. Yeah, it's a stressful time of year for a lot of people. But... Kim, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you got into the study of science and belief, science and religion? Yes. So ever since I started studying psychology as an undergraduate, I've been interested in questions related to different social identities and stereotypes within society. And I started working as an undergraduate psychology major as a research assistant in 
a culture and stereotypes lab at Stanford University. And the graduate student that mentored me, uh, Vicki Plout, is now a law professor at University of California at Berkeley. And I always like to tell her at conferences, she's the reason that I'm still here, the reason that I'm in the field, because she just did a fantastic job introducing me to social psychology and letting me know that there were other options uh, if I wanted to pursue graduate school but didn't necessarily want to become a therapist. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, was, that was really nice and that was a good uh, start to, well, very early start to my career. And when I pursued my PhD, I actually went to a business school. So I identify as a social psychologist, but my PhD is in organizational behavior from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And it was basically a social psychology program uh, within a business school. So the only difference was I maybe took uh, some core classes in economics, sociology, as opposed to say neuroscience or developmental psychology, but the specialization was the same. And uh, again, I continued with study of stereotypes, attitudes and beliefs, and social identities and threats to those identities more generally. And I started my first job uh, after I finished my PhD in 2008. I had sort of a roundabout way of getting back into a psychology department and coming full circle, as they say. Uh, I, from 2008 to 2010, was an assistant professor of communication at Ohio State University. And uh, that was a really interesting department to be a part of. And I would say uh, it still influences the way that I try to approach my work now in a more interdisciplinary fashion, talking with scholars across the social sciences. Um, but I was there for two years and then ultimately decided my true academic home would be in a psychology department. So I moved to University of Chicago in their psych department and I was there for three years. And finally, um, my dream job at Ohio University came up. It was uh, just the right department in terms of intellectual fit, the number and quality of people that were doing similar work to, uh, to what I've been doing for uh, my entire career. So I jumped on that, have been here since 2013. And it was around the time that I got to Ohio University that I started studying questions related to science and religion. So it was a series of uh, serendipitous events. I happened to just for personal reasons, go on a 10 day vacation to Morocco in about 2011, uh, the end of that year. And when I was in Morocco, it was the first time that I visited a predominantly Muslim country and really engaged with the people there about differences between cultures, between our uh, belief systems. And I mentioned something offhand during one of our conversations about how in the US, there's often a prominent narrative that religion and science are in conflict and that religious people, particularly Christians, uh, don't uh, aren't very engaged or don't do well in science that that's the prominent stereotype 
And my Muslim friends were shocked by this. They said, really? That's a thing? People actually believe that? That's weird. And I was shocked that they were shocked by it. And little did I know at the time, you know, I was just having a friendly exchange that there were actually researchers who have studied these questions. And so around the same time as that, uh, the John Templeton Foundation came out with a call for grant proposals on the religion science relationship. And because my background was on uh, effects of negative stereotypes and threats to people's identities uh, as group members, I decided to put in a proposal which uh, ultimately, it was funded, it created the first, my 2015 paper on negative stereotypes about Christians and science. It was my first foray really publishing in this area. Um, and the project that I did based on this grant was about how, number one, Christians do encounter negative stereotypes in the U.S. about, in many other Western societies about their scientific abilities. And number two, that being reminded of these stereotypes can lead Christians to withdraw further and perform worse on science-related tasks than they otherwise would. And so uh, that's around the time that I started really getting into these research questions. And uh, in about 2016, I met Carissa Sharp, who's of course, a research fellow at Birmingham, and yeah, that's well. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the world of Carissa, and not least because she got me introduced and involved in this network in the first place. Uh, she and I saw each other's conference presentations one year, realized we were working on very similar questions, and I've been a part of this lovely network ever since, and uh, because the more I delve into the study of science and belief, the more I realize that there are so many interesting unanswered questions uh, that still need to be researched. I, uh, yeah, I've been studying this ever since, and uh, this is what I've really glommed onto as a scientist and uh, what has become, you know, as somebody who studies identities, it's become really important to my identity as a researcher, um, mm, mm. studying the relationship and the intersection between science and uh, people's attitudes and uh, abilities in science or performance in different belief systems. Uh, th thanks for sharing that, Kim. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear from from different people, kind of their their pathways through the academy in general, but also kind of how they kind of end up at the kind of substantive topics that they're they're currently studying. Um, mm -hmm quite quite a distance from kind of the origins in the uh, the management business kind of school to kind of the topics now um which is really interesting yeah definitely although uh, i mean it's it seems that way on the surface but um a lot of uh faculty and students at business schools tend to uh, research very similar questions to what we social psychologists and psych departments are researching. I mean, perhaps the emphasis is different. So I have a lot of friends and colleagues in business schools who study, say, consumer behavior, um, issues related to power of status and organizations. But a lot of these issues can be translated to literally anywhere in society. So we see power and status differentials even in studying, say, 
relations between different religious groups in mm. society. So I do think there's a lot of overlap and I credit my business school education and background as really urging me to think about whenever I talk about my research or publish my research, um, why does it matter? And why should people who are outside my home discipline and who are even outside academia care about the questions that I'm researching? In business schools, they really ingrain it into you that you have to have a broader message and you can't just conduct your research in a vacuum of other academics, other people in your discipline. So I feel really grateful that I had that training and that uh, now I feel a bit better equipped to uh, be able to translate my research to the general public. Yeah, that's, that's great. And obviously, the network itself is kind of predicated on that idea of trying to, you know, speak across disciplines and speak, you know, and, and, you know, get different areas and topics kind of speaking to each other. So it's, you know, it's perfectly apt for kind of what we're trying to do here. Um, yes, yeah, so and it's interesting that you talk about, I mean, that some of the disciplines you mentioned there, you know, you kind of, on the one hand, kind of economics and right through to kind of like neuro kind of psychology, neuroimaging kind of things. It's a pretty broad sweep. Um, but kind of full disclosure here, I guess, neither, neither James nor I would describe ourselves as social psychologists, I think. So I think, and I, this probably is the case for at least some of our listeners. Um, mm -hmm. So it'd be great if you could just kind of tell us a little bit more generally about discipline uh, of social psychology. So maybe a bit about its methods, its aims, maybe even its epistemology, if we kind of want to go down that road. But you know, it'd be great if you could just tell us some more about that. Sure. So broadly speaking, I would, and most of my colleagues would define social psychology as the study of how people's mental processes, thoughts, feelings, behaviors are affected by aspects of the social context and the situation. So when I took my very first social psychology class um, as an undergraduate, one of the main messages that my professor really instilled into us was the power of the situation to really alter people's behaviors and the fact that according to social psychology, seemingly ordinary people can be uh, influenced by different aspects of the context, their environment, to do sometimes extraordinary things. And so when we try to interpret people's behavior as social psychologists, we look um, not necessarily at, well, what is it about aspects of the person's disposition or character that might have influenced the way that they behave or the way that they think, but we try to think of what are aspects of the immediate situation uh, that can change that might uh, induce them to behave, think, and feel the way that they do? So a little bit about uh, some of the most seminal studies in social psychology. Uh, one of the first ones that uh, even non-psychologists might have read about or heard about in the media is uh, Ash's studies on conformity behavior. So uh, Solomon Ash was a social psychologist in uh, the mid 20th century who did a series of studies where he had a bunch of men sit uh, around in a round table, maybe it was seven, eight guys, uh, all of whom were actually research assistants, except 
the one person who was the naive participant. And he put all these guys in the room together and he said, hey, and they, these were college students. He said, look, here are uh, three different lines of different lengths and I'm gonna show you a fourth line and you have to tell me which of those three lines you just saw is the same length as the line that I'm about to show you. And the answer here, it's, it's a basic perceptual question. The answer should be very, very obvious um, because the difference between the lines was quite pronounced. But what happens during this, uh, during this paradigm is all the research assistants go first, and of course, the poor naive participant is assigned to go last. And all the research assistants give the same incorrect answer. They say it's line number two when it's really, say, number three. And so the participant is sitting there probably thinking, all right, what's going on? Uh, are, do I need my eyes checked? What are these people thinking? <laughs> what are they doing? And in two thirds of the cases, actually, despite how in American society we are always, we were often touted for being individualistic, for expressing ourselves, especially when you think of young male college students um, in that environment, you wouldn't necessarily think they'd be so susceptible to social influence. But what happens in two thirds of the cases in this study is that um, the participant actually gives the same incorrect answer as uh, the other people in the room did prior to them. So there, uh, it's this aspect of the situation, the pressures toward conformity in the group that uh, can influence people who might even think of themselves as free-spirited, as nonconformist, to try to blend in to that particular situation. And there have been, in the past several decades, uh, replications of this paradigm that show that overall the levels of conformity stay pretty much the same and researchers who have done these types of studies will often report there is no way you know you try to look at somebody when they come in and predict whether they're going to be the ones that conform or not and you absolutely can't tell there's no way because uh, a lot of people's behaviors according to social psychology uh, is determined by the power of the situation. And um, similar to that, there's been, there have been a lot of uh, replications and variations on this paradigm where they'll say plant one person in the room who gives the correct answer or even a different correct answer from the rest of the group. And that'll embolden the real participant to uh, to voice the correct answer and to not conform to the group. Or if they say that the people in, the other people that are in the group that are giving the incorrect answer, that they're members of uh, an outgroup, so say a different university, a different college major from the participant, that can also reduce levels of conformity. So there are a lot of things that you can do within this paradigm that might increase or decrease um, people, whether people will go along with the group, again, um, testifying to the power of the situation, as we like to say in social psychology. I've heard of those Ash, um, the conformity kind of things. And, it, and then you were sort of talking about um, uh, the kind of thing where you put someone to kind of give the right answer. And you, as soon yeah. as you put kind of one person in that, like makes a difference, then everyone else comes forward. Um, and it reminded me of this video 
of this guy <laughs> at a festival dancing by himself, like really kind of like bad dancing around. Everyone's kind of looking at him like, you know, there's lots of people sitting around. There's just one bloke kind of dancing and he's having like, you know, but no one's really with him. And then after about a minute or two, like one other person gets up to start dancing with him. And then within like five seconds, he's got like a crowd of like 50 people have all just charged in. Cause like the, and it's like, is there a name for that thing? Isn't that a social psychological concept for, so you have the person who start who starts the thing and no one does anything, but then as soon as you've got one, you know, wow. one extra person, suddenly everyone will do it kind of thing. Yeah. So you're asking if there's a particular name for that? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, or something that people are interested in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that's a good example potentially of normative influence. So the power of uh, social norms to shape uh, and uh, the more uh, the more consensus there is for um, a certain type of behavior for people to actually think that that's the appropriate thing to do under those circumstances. And that yeah. reminds me also of uh, one of my favorite episodes of Cam of Candid Camera uh, from say the 1960s. Videotape people as they were going into an elevator, and uh, when they would go into an elevator and see one person who was actually facing backwards instead of forwards as you usually do in the elevator people would just kind of look around and then follow that person and do what that person was doing because they figured well within that situation that was the appropriate thing to do <laughs> that's super interesting i was reading kind of about your research and, and part of your research is kind of looking at um about identities and about social identities and kind of threats to those those identities as well and how people's kind of behaviors can change in response to that but then I, I was reading part about your research and you mentioned about majority identities and minority identities and I wondered if you could just um, explain that to us. Okay so I would say broadly speaking I conceptualize majority and minority identities as those that are held by, um, well, a majority versus a minority of people. And okay. um, just uh, for, uh, just, just as an example, when we talk about majority and minority racial and ethnic identities in the US, um, a lot of times we'll refer to the majority group as white European Americans, minority group, as uh, people of color, so Black, African American, Asian American, Hispanic, Latino, so forth. Um, but it's important to, uh, even though majority identities can often be, uh, can over overlap with dominant group identities, it's uh, important to keep the terminology straight and to remember that having a majority group identity doesn't always mean that one is in the dominant group. So in the case of uh, race and ethnicity in the US, it is true that white European Americans are at least for now the majority in the US, although that's rapidly changing. This is projected to not be the case by uh, the mid 21st century. But uh, Historically, whites and European Americans have held a disproportionate amount of power in, uh, in the US. So in this case, the majority and the dominant group are aligned within society. But if you look at countries like South Africa, where 
uh, the majority, the, the group that's in the numerical majority isn't necessarily the group that is dominant and that has the most power in society. And indeed, if you look at the U.S., where uh, in 2050, majorities, uh, white European Americans will no longer be the majority, they will, they're projected to be in the minority, that these majority and dominant group memberships don't often or don't always align. Um, but what I study in my research is uh, just looking at how uh, groups that are in the numerical majority or minority, or those that are dominant versus subordinate, powerful versus less powerful groups, um, how their membership and identity uh, in these groups and the importance that they ascribe to their group identity uh, can influence how they behave, how they think, and how they feel. So that's really, broadly speaking, the crux of my research. And uh, the way that my study of religion factors into this is uh, that, of course, within the US, Christians are the majority religious group. And some would say, uh, a lot of people would say, also a dominant group in terms of having disproportionate power in society, even though church and state are uh, supposedly separate in the US. You see uh, in a lot of presidential elections, so much importance is placed on whether or not the presidential candidates are authentically religious, uh, whether they show up to church and so forth during their campaigns. So there's a lot of emphasis on religion um, and particularly Christianity as the dominant group, the majority group in American society. So I'm interested in a lot of different majority minority identities and uh, particular to what I'm discussing here, religious identity. That's that's really interesting and yeah I, I think as you say it's really important to kind of separate out when you're talking about numerical minorities versus kind of power minorities um, which helps mm -hmm. and I suppose when the way in which we define a power minority is kind of context dependent as well right so you might look at the US and the overall population and say Christianity or Christian people are kind of in a power majority but say within a lab or you know some sort of academic field Christians within that field would you be able to define them as a as a power minority within there if it's quite a secular a secular field or a secular situation? Yeah, that's precisely why I think that the example of Christians and religious individuals in scientific fields is really interesting because mm. here we have Christians as a dominant and majority group within American society. Um, if you look at statistic, recent statistics, even though there's a growing population of non-religious people in the US, still upwards of uh, some estimate 90% of Americans report believing in God and the vast majority of those are Christians. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at uh, people who were, in, who, who were studying science, people who are professors at universities in the sciences, it's a very small minority of, uh, of faculty and even students in the sciences who report believing in God and having a strong religious affiliation. So even though Christians are a dominant and majority group within the US as a whole, there is this issue of them being uh, underrepresented in uh, scientific fields. And that includes the social sciences. Yeah, I mean, which 
again entirely brings it back to this focus on the context in which the kind of identity emerges and that you know and that being vital to kind of understanding how these kind of dynamics play out absolutely yeah that, that's really interesting um so one of your recent um papers was uh, titled examining christians reactions to reminders of religion science conflict stereotype threat versus disengagement um so can you just tell us there what is stereotype threat and what is disengagement yes so uh stereotype threat broadly speaking is the idea that uh members of uh disadvantaged groups in particular contexts um so it doesn't have to mean disadvantaged in society as a whole it just means disadvantaged within that particular domain if they're reminded of negative stereotypes about their group's abilities or uh, performance within that domain then they can feel members of that group will respond with feelings of threat and not wanting to confirm that a particular negative stereotype about their group will then underperform and sometimes disidentify with uh, the group to which they belong. So just a couple of specific examples before I go into uh, the example of religious individuals, particularly Christians in science. A lot of the seminal studies on stereotype threat uh, in academics had to do with women, uh, stereotypes of women as being, uh, as, as having inferior mathematical and scientific ability. Now it's not, of course, it's no longer socially acceptable to express these negative stereotypes, um, but they still do persist in uh, many scientific domains and the issue of women being underrepresented in uh, many subfields of STEM is very real. So what the researchers uh, in Claude Steele and Joshua Aronson, Steve Spencer, those are a couple of the big names, people who pioneered this theory, what they would do is bring uh, men and women into the lab and they would give participants a really difficult math test to take and they would tell them either uh, this math test has shown gender differences in performance, uh, or this test has shown no gender differences in performance. Men and women tend to perform equally. Now, uh, one of the seminal findings was when participants are told that their gender differences in performance, or even when they're told nothing about the test, men will outperform women. And it's explicitly when this negative stereotype is dispelled about the test and when, uh, when participants are told that men and women in fact perform equally, that the performance differences subsequently disappear. Now, there's, there have been replications of stereotype threat effects among different groups like African-Americans and standardized testing. So for those examples, all participants have to do is prior to taking um, a standardized test indicate their race or ethnicity on a demographic questionnaire uh, and even that very subtle manipulation of making one's race or ethnicity salient in the moment is enough to trigger underperformance 
among stigmatized group members, in this case, African-Americans, um, subsequently on the test. And so stereotype threat theorists uh, say that this is a process that occurs because being reminded of the stigma surrounding one's group membership in a particular domain will make members of that group uh, feel very anxious, it'll disrupt their working memory, it'll lead to fears that they will be the people to confirm the stereotypes of that group. So they don't necessarily have to personally endorse the stereotype. So a woman who goes in and learns that there's gender differences in test performance doesn't necessarily have to think, like have to endorse the stereotype that women are bad at math and science. She just has to be concerned that uh, if she happens to underperform, then she's just gonna make women look bad, right? <laughs> um, that that's, uh, that's gonna reflect poorly on her group membership. And so in a paper that I published in 2015 with uh, my colleagues, uh, Zen Chang, my former student, Rebecca Totten, and Azim Sharif, we found that Christians when they're told that there are religious differences in, or differences between religious groups in performance on a test that's relevant to science, that Christians will show these same stereotype threat effects and they'll underperform when they learn their religious differences, but there are no differences in performance when this stereotype is explicitly dispelled, when they're told uh, Christians and non-Christians tend to perform equally. And uh, what was important about the 2020 paper that you mentioned about stereotype threat versus disengagement, well, there are two things that I see as particularly important about this paper and why I really wanted to publish it um, as a follow-up to our initial 2015 studies. Now, the first reason is that uh, from our studies alone in 2015, it wasn't clear whether stereotype threat, this fear of um, this fear of confirming society's stereotype about one's group, whether that was what was really at play with the Christians who were underperforming on the scientific test, or whether it was instead a question of, as the article title refers to it, disengagement. Whether Christians who heard this of the presence of the negative stereotype about their groups simply said to themselves, uh, I, you know what, I just don't care about performing well on this task and science isn't really aligned with my values in the first place. So I'm basically just gonna check out and I'm not gonna try very hard. Um, and when we released our 2015 paper, we got, and, and indeed, when I present this work to uh, other academics and to the general public, I often get a lot of questions like, well, how do you know that the Christians who were uh, recruited for this study really cared about science? How do you know that they weren't just uh, disengaged and uninterested in science in the first place? And uh, I get at this in the 2020 paper, and I explicitly address this mechanism in two different ways. First of all, by showing that not only do uh, when Christians are reminded 
of the stereotype that Christianity and science are in conflict, that they don't go together. Not only do Christians underperform when they're reminded of this stereotype, but they also report heightened feelings of anxiety, of um, worry that they will be judged um, according to their religious group membership um, on uh, their performance on scientific tasks and so forth. So in other words, they report greater subjective feelings of stereotype threat. And also, one other thing that I found in this uh, 2020 paper was that the effects were actually strongest among Christian participants who were highly engaged and identified with science in the first place. So it's these people, according to stereotype threat theory, that should be uh, the most uh, vulnerable and should experience, you know, be the hardest hit by negative stereotypes about their group. Because if you take Christians who just kind of check out of science and don't care about science in the first place, which is kind of a stereotype in a lot of American society that Christians are like that and Christianity and science don't go together, then being reminded of a stereotype about one's group that uh, Christianity and science don't mix, that shouldn't really affect them because that should just, if they're disengaged with science, it should confirm what they think they already know. But I found, number one, that Christians um, both report greater subjective feelings of stereotype threat, and number two, that this effect is especially pronounced when Christians are strongly identified with science. Um, and that's, those are the reasons that I think uh, Theoretically, this recent paper expands upon our previous work in this area. And another thing that I want to address for psychology and particularly social psychology listeners who might be tuned into the podcast, we have uh, something going that's been going on in the past decade in my field of social psychology, which some will refer to as the replication crisis. Are you all familiar with that? Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask you about this as well. So I'm glad you, well, glad yeah. you brought it up because you did. You do mention it in the paper as well. Yeah. So, um, so about ten years ago, uh, well, starting about ten years ago, some social psychology researchers got into a lot of trouble for um, either fabricating their results altogether or. Uh, fudging the results a little bit in order to attain statistical significance. So ever since then, there's been uh, an increase in our field in um, making sure that people adhere to best research practices, that uh, we do things like recruit larger samples in our studies, um, sometimes pre-register our studies online before we run them. So in other words, uh, we have, uh, we fill in a form that says what our methods are, what we're going to measure, what we hypothesize, and how we're going to test these hypotheses, uh, on what grounds we're going to exclude potential participants who don't meet the criteria for the study. And that way, we're held accountable by the pre-registration form, um, and people can look up and see if we really did what we said we were going to do. When I first published uh, 
the 2015 paper on, on the negative stereotypes about Christians in science. Um, the, the issues surrounding best research practices and replicability had been around for a couple of years. People were discussing it, but it wasn't, uh, it's only in the past, I would say the five years since that paper has been published, uh, so 2015 to 2020, where the field has really started to catch up and start demanding larger sample sizes, more pre-registrations, uh, just more, um, you know, more care around including different control variables in one's studies. And so when I published the 2020 paper, you know, I looked back at our 2015 paper and we do have sample sizes that are smaller than what the standards would be nowadays, even just five years later. So I wanted to make sure when I published this 2020 paper that, uh, you know, that I recruited larger samples, I pre-registered one of my studies, I was extremely transparent in the methods I used, uh, the data for all of my studies are publicly available online, because, um, you know, both because I really care about best research practices and um, open science in this era of being more careful as social psychologists and also because I'm aware that in the past several years stereotype threat theory in particular has come under fire as a theory that people don't necessarily trust anymore that people are skeptical about the replicability of some of the earlier effects and so uh, both for intrinsic reasons and for that intrinsic reason that I knew that stereotype threat is particularly vulnerable to uh, these concerns from readers, that I wanted to make sure that I was adhering to best methodological practices in this paper. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And um, just from my kind of disciplinary background as a sort of science and technology studies scholar, the kind of the replication crisis, as you kind of talked about it, there is something that uh, I think people in sort of my discipline have been following quite, you know, following, paying quite a lot of attention, uh, quite a lot of attention to because of the kind mm -hmm. of, you know, the way it's sort of showing kind of the um, kind of science in action and the kind of social influences on science and things like that. So I think it's um, really interesting. But just to go back to kind of what you were talking about at the start there in terms of or this idea that... Um, of stereotype threat particularly impacting people who really uh religious or christians who really kind of are interested in science as well just to kind of mm -hmm. i don't know if this is a good analogy i don't know if this might maybe helpful for kind of the non-social psychologists again but it's a bit like choking right when you care really you know it's sort of something like that metaphorically choking. <laughs> yeah metaphorically you know when you were you know <laughs> failing to pot the black in the you know a game of pool that you really care about or you know missing the the penalty in the shootout you know because you really want to win that kind of something you know something like that you know is that a good analogy or am I simplifying it too much? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, social psychologists have used that analogy themselves when talking about stereotype threat and related effects of uh, the idea that one can choke under the pressure of uh, not wanting to be the one to confirm the negative stereotype. So yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> oh, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't uh, completely <laughs> in the wrong area there. <laughs> I, I do I do wonder with with stereotypes it seems like if true stereotype threat which it does seem that there's quite a lot of studies kind of showing it you know um it's quite an important perspective to explain um various situations going on in society so one wonders if 
part of the resistance to it is is almost because it explains underperformance by some groups externally rather than internally whereas say if you had kind of you know misogynists want to explain underperformance by women in stem because women are bad at stem rather than kind of these broader narratives you know racists want to explain underperformance by black people or or racial minorities because of some internal thing rather than these broader external forces so one wonders if kind of some resistance to this idea comes because it has an external explanation rather than the internal explanations yeah and i found i i think that could be true for the subsets of people in society who still um, are comfortable openly expressing racism or mm. sexism. But in uh, my particular uh, studies of stereotypes among Christ in, of Christians in science, I found that uh, that is absolutely the case. So whenever I take this research on the road and I uh, give talks at different universities, or even when I get comments back from reviewers, I see, and uh, we are, of course, in academia, a disproportionately secular field. We don't have a lot of Christians who are out and proud about their identity. So I'll see a lot of comments from reviewers, from audience members that'll say things like, well, but, Christianity and science really are incompatible. They can't really go together. Or uh, they'll try to explain the results I found um, in any other way except the presence of negative stereotypes and how they might affect Christians. They'll say, well, how do you know that Christians just didn't care about the task because, you know, they don't really care about science anyway. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, one of the first, well, the first set of reviews that we got back from our 2015 paper, uh, there was a comment in there from reviewer two, and yes, it really was reviewer two. <laughs> we well, have that joke. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have that joke in your field too, that it's always reviewer two who's the most Indeed. negative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so reviewer two actually said, I didn't learn anything new in this paper about a stereotype threat or about Christians in science, except to, uh, this paper confirmed the stereotype that Christians don't do as well in science. Mm. I thought, well, no, there's a control condition where Christians and non-Christians performed equally well. So this reviewer too had a somewhat motivated explanation for what was going on <laughs> with the data. And it just yeah. the, the kind of, you know, reinforcing there, the kind of ubiquity of this kind of conflict framing that's kind of, you know, that's it's taken for granted kind of nature, you know, this is it's, which again, in terms of the kind of wider interest of the network and the kind of people involved is, you know, I'm sure, you know, interesting and pro potentially not that surprising for some people, but you know, but it is, you know, the where it crops up and where, you know, that conflict framing, its implications, as you're showing are, you know, potentially really quite, quite profound. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and so the the implications of this. Talking about kind of, we were speaking a little earlier about kind of thinking of implications for research. These are these are quite big implications when we think about STEM pipeline and you know overall there being less religious people in the sciences and perhaps this being some sort of uh, mechanism which might be able to explain that disparity at least in part. Do you think? 
Yeah, um, and I would never suggest that it's the only explanation or even the, the biggest explanation for why Christians are underrepresented in science. Mm. But I do think if we just pay a little bit more attention to how, uh, how we talk about religious identities within the sciences and whether we're really making people of multiple backgrounds uh, feel welcomed within our discipline, I think that could go a long way. And uh, similarly, I've done some work um, that has been recently published in Public Understanding of Science mm. about how uh, religious people can actually exhibit more trust in science after they read about uh, examples either of particular scientists who are religious and whose faith is important to them, or when they read that statistics indicating that more scientists than they thought are Christian or religious. So seeing as uh, somebody who is a member of a religious group, whether it's Christian or uh, some other faith, seeing that your faith is well represented among scientists, among top researchers in your field can really go a long way in decreasing feelings of threat, increasing feelings of belonging and uh, using the particular example of uh, how Christians are a majority group in America but at the same time are very underrepresented in the sciences. Uh, I think that's a particularly dangerous discrepancy because given the proportion of Americans who are Christian you'd expect to see more who are actually pursuing sciences. But if we're doing something by perpetuating the religion-science conflict narrative and negative stereotypes that Christianity doesn't mix and conflicts with science, if we're deterring such a large percentage of the population from going into scientific fields in the first place and wanting to further pursue science, then we're doing something wrong here as a society and uh, we are not tapping into as much of uh, the brain power, if you will, um, and as many potentially talented people who could be pursuing science the sciences as we could. And I guess that kind of speaks to this kind of broader question of, uh, and this is something that we're asking you kind of all our guests, but I think we've kind of touched on a lot of this stuff, but how do you think that uh, social psychological methods kind of can help us to better understand the relationship between science and belief in society? Well, uh, as I mentioned early on in the podcast, one of the remarkable aspects of social psychological methods to me is the ability for subtle features of the situation to influence people's behavior. And I think within the study of science and belief in society, uh, I know I and um, my colleagues such as Carissa, Carol Alight, uh, Fern, uh, Elton Baker, have been uh, manipulating or varying the salience of the religion science conflict narrative um, and seeing how that affects people's behaviors, self-concepts, feelings, and so forth. So simply increasing, um, in other words, uh, 
the accessibility of people's beliefs that either science and religion are in conflict or science and religion actually can coexist has a powerful influence on individuals' uh, behaviors and subsequent responses. And I think it's these sorts of subtle, um, subtle variations in the situation that social psychologists are particularly well-equipped to, uh, to investigate and to understand. And I also, uh, so somewhat relatedly, but not necessarily unique to social psychology, one particularly fascinating and important aspect of the situation is, of course, uh, overall sociocultural context. And I'm seeing within the psychology of religion an increasing number of researchers, including myself, who have been uh, looking at the prevalence of uh, the religion science conflict narrative, uh, the existence of certain stereotypes of religious and non-religious groups across different cultures. So I think that uh, understanding, not, not just looking at, well, uh, what do people within this society do versus what do people within that society do, but really understand the reasons uh, and the contextual factors. What is it about those societies that lead to differences in people's behaviors and mental processes? And that again, uh, you know, understanding the reasons behind these uh, situational variations um, is what social psychologists are particularly well positioned within this field to understand. Yeah, so to, to kind of really kind of focus in and hone in on that kind of somewhere between the kind of more structural issues that kind of, you know, wider issues that maybe kind of other sociologists might focus in and then down to you know filling that niche between that and then maybe the more kind of you know real hard psychological stuff which is kind of the internal state stuff we're getting that you know the the impact of the situation around that to kind of really see where where the influence of those kinds of you know more immediate external factors are that's um yes definitely this has been really really interesting uh kids thank you so much it's been a real education for us to <laughs> non-social sure. psychologists to be able to learn and listen um to you um of course we'll link uh to your paper in the description when the podcast comes out and that is something everyone should go and read if they're interested but i was just wondering if you could point listeners to any other resources or papers or books either kind of more broadly um, you know introductory to social psychology or more specifically around stereotype threat um, or indeed just any of your other work that you'd like people to go and go and go and read about yes so uh i would uh, just related to the general uh topic of religion, science, conflict narratives, and how that affects people of different backgrounds. I would put in a plug um, for Elaine Eklund's research on uh, what religious and non-religious people really think about science and religion. Uh, she's a sociologist, but her work has been uh, extremely influential to informing my own perspective. She's published many books and articles on these topics. And uh, very recently, around the same time that, uh, that this 2020 paper of mine was published, uh, a, friend of, a friend and colleague of mine, Elizabeth Barnes, just published a paper on how Christian job applicants to academic positions in the sciences 
actually encounter discrimination relative to non-religious applicants. So if you're interested in looking at uh, the psychological effects um, of these negative stereotypes on actual hiring decisions, then I would certainly suggest that paper. And uh, just putting, finally putting in a plug for some of my own work in this area um, beyond simply, uh, beyond just looking at stereotype threat. Um, I do have a couple of papers that were just published in Public Understanding of Science that are on my website. Um, and if you would like a copy, you're free to email me for one. But uh, they have to do with how people's trust in science can be influenced by reading about uh, whether a scientist in particular or most scientists in general do or don't have religious backgrounds. So these are all, um, the, these resources and these references are all generally related to the topic of science and belief and how the conflict narrative can affect perceptions of religious people in the sciences as well as the experiences of religious people themselves with science. I think that was a dog shaking in the background there, was it? It's a round of applause from, from Jimmy. I <laughs> is Jimmy a famous dog on the social psychology conference scene? He is, yeah. Um, he, uh, there was one time that I had a friend at the conference with me who was watching Jimmy outside the room where there was a social hour, and she said at least three people, you know, she didn't have anything to do with social psychology, she was just watching Jimmy, but at least three people, when they were going into the social hour, they said, hi, Jimmy! <laughs> ah, the, the perfect networker. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that, Kate. We will um, link to all of those uh, papers um, on the website when we post yeah thanks thanks a lot kim that's it's, it's really interesting really great it's been a pleasure how good was that really good yeah really good um kim's really impressive academic isn't she some really yeah. interesting really important areas of, of research really yeah good, really we are now not totally ignorant of <laughs> psychology which is can only be a good thing can only be a good thing yeah so um we hope you uh, all enjoyed that as well um thanks again uh to our guest this week dr kimberly rios um as we've said there will be links to the various uh, bits, resources, bits of information, papers that Kim talked about on our website. So be sure to check that out. Um, thanks again to the International Research Network for the study of science and belief in society uh, for allowing us to kind of bring this podcast to you. Uh, and yeah, come back in future. We will be talking to researchers who are looking at the conflict thesis, uh, which obviously has come up a bit today, but in more historical detail, we'll be looking or talking to researchers who are looking at science and religion in India and also science and religion in South Africa. So we have a, an international flavour uh, in upcoming podcasts. And best of all, Rachel will be back with us uh, Rachel next will be time. Back. Yeah. yeah, she'll be back from her private island. 
back oh, from her oh, private oh, island. She's in... on the jet soon, I think, isn't she? Yeah. Is that the yeah. uh, is that the island in the middle of the air in York? I'm not sure. Yes. Is that the river in yeah. York? <laughs> the River Ooze, is it? Yeah, somewhere. There's a small stone in the middle of the River Ooze that uh, Rachel will be coming back from. So we're off to fetch her from there. But until then, thanks very much, and see you again.